Yes, but he's essentially like a guru in that world. And he was going to be in Chicago on July 2nd, but he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and has to go in for surgery right away. I was going to say, did the dingo eat his baby? (sighs) That's horrible. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke, and I am sitting here with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Greg Gagne to the Beer City Bruiser, Matt Winchester. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications and is currently searching for a new place to live. With 20 years of experience, he's a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the incomparable and soon-to-be homeless, the one, the only, Derek St. Holmes Esquire. How are you? I take huge exception to your grammar in that introduction. There. <laughs> How so? I am looking for another place to live. Thank you. Right. No, I mean... Hey. I thought it was funny. All I have to do is, you know make a phone call and I'm taken care of. All that, right. That's it. That's kind of what I figured. That's why I thought yeah. it'd be such a nice thing to do. Uh, hey, welcome back. It's been a while. Um, we've had a lot going on uh, with all of us in the last few weeks. So uh, I want to apologize. And I'm sure you do too, to all the fans. We recorded a very fine Easter egg. Yes. Yes. And um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Kyle's been gone. He's Sorry, been at Kyle. the, he's been at the star Wars celebration and, um, you're in the middle of looking for a new place to live, right? Why are you hammering this? <laughs> I don't, just having fun. I, right? I, it wasn't what I thought you were going to say. And I've had some other stuff going on myself. <laughs> um, it's clearing up nicely. And I thought that was good. Yeah, I'm yeah. waiting for okay. you to get to it. Very good. Okay. No, just kidding. Uh, but anyhow, uh, we're happy to be back and doing this. And this week... Squirrely. I know, a little bit. It's been a while. Uh, this week, we're covering something I think is great, uh, pretty fun. Uh, do you think it's fun? Uh, sure. Yeah? What is it? <laughs> Super Clash. Which one? Three. I loved Super Clash 3, by the way. D- genuinely? Yes. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I bought into the hype of the whole, oh, all these promotions are working together. So much so that uh, this is back when you would write letters to people. Yes. Like a friend of mine was in the Navy and, you know, because everybody likes to hear their name at mail calls. So you write them a letter and stuff like that. Um, shut up. <laughs> sure. But I told him about the buildup to this because I was so excited about it. I actually. Are you sure it was the Navy and wasn't just like a prison pen pal? Yes. Okay. I don't know. They don't get TV in prison. Well, they do, but not. Somebody cut you off in traffic today. That's oh, my happened. goodness. So the year was 1988. Um, this is sometimes, uh, perceived as AWA's 
last ditch effort to make some strides against the Vince McMahon juggernaut, the WWF. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think about uh, the whole Vergania Pro Wrestling USA, um, all the other promoters involved? What are your thoughts on this kind of before we even get into the pay-per-view, we need to discuss you know, the prelude to that, everything that happens with it. Of course, the state of the business at the time. Uh, again, you really have to understand. We've gone through several times talking about the territory system and how that all worked. And this was possibly when all of the old school promoters that were used to doing the same old, same old, because that's all they had done, finally woke up and said, okay, we have to organize ourselves and we have to get something done. But again, they tried to do it according to the old school ways and everything that they knew, and it just didn't work in the new world. Right. And um, none too of little them, too late. Right. And none of them trusted each other. In Ex- the end, that's basically it, right? Exactly. Um, wrestling at its core is an industry of deception because um, for years you were, you know, swore up and down everything was legitimate and everything like that. And it becomes the art of the work but then the work happens with the people the work happens between the workers between the promoters and the workers and then even among the promoters right you know it's just all kind of have to smile every time you shake your hand right about it no absolutely and what was interesting about this conglomerate or this group of promoters was that i think the big thing to take away from it was that champions from different promotions were going to battle with each other and it was going to be I mean, there was never really, um, there never was going to be like one unified champion under this whole regime at, at the beginning of it. It was just going to be a chance for, to highlight, you know, supposedly an AWA champion going up against an NWA champion or a WCCW champion. Um, and that was one of the big allures to starting something like the Pro Wrestling USA. I don't know if it was so much, well, obviously champion versus champion, that was the first thing they would go to in the magazines, but how do I want to put this in words? They were trying to go up against Vince and take money out of Vince's pocket by putting on this big show right. and, and going against him. But they didn't understand that he had changed the business and made it about so much more than just ticket sales. Right. Understood the licensing. Understood, for better or worse, how to get in and out of contracts and bind people up in deals and, you know, again, redefine the industry. Um but the, all the old school promoters were just, uh, we'll just go ahead, we'll get this together, and then once Vince is out of business, we'll all settle back down into our little islands. Right. It, it just wasn't going to work. Well, and the first, the initial super clash, the first one, uh, was pretty good. Uh, it drew 21,000 paying fans. Uh, that was, I mean, for the time, that was pretty good uh, in the sense that... Uh, you, that's pretty good for now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So you're looking at... Uh, what was it? Road Warriors versus the Freebirds. This is on Super Clash One. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You had Rick Martel defending AWA title against Stan Hansen. You had Rick Flair defending against Magnum TA. Uh, it was just like a, it was a real star-studded who's who event. I know yes. they had some Japanese uh, wrestlers on the show as well. It was it was a thing. It was definitely something pretty great, and it had the makings. I mean, if you're just looking at it at surface level, it had the makings of being, wow, this is this super card, all these champions from all over the place. And then, of course, then it would come down to Jim Crockett Jr. and Vern Gagne butting heads because they were uh, arguing over the actual gate and the receipts of the event and uh, how much money was actually made on the show. Exactly. Another story I had heard about this was that Ric Flair did not get paid for that show 
because of something along the lines of Ganya claimed he never paid him to train or didn't fulfill. Ganya would always have his students under like a 10% contract where yeah. he got 10% of your money for like five years. And maybe Ric Flair, maybe Jim Brunzel, don't really remember, were like some of the only people that paid through the length of the entire contract. Oh, okay. You know, a lot of guys got out of it because Vern would book them out and then the other promoters would get in their head and say, what are you, what are you paying him for? Right. You right. know, it's like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. And then, you know, offer him a sum to buy him out. And oftentimes that's what would happen. Well, it seems like the through the thread that follows through this whole Super Clash and Pro Wrestling USA is Vern Gagne finding ways to screw people out of money. Well, but before we vilify Vern Gagne, every promoter that's on this board that we're going to discuss today did the exact same thing, if not worse. Sure. Wrestling is always scummier than you want to believe it is. No, absolutely. And uh, so after uh, Crockett Jr. and Gagne got into the uh, argument, I guess you could say, about the gate and how much money was made. Uh, and and by the way, that doesn't surprise me at all. Right. Of course that's going to happen. Sure, yeah. I mean, why yeah. don't you have that sewn up before you go into it? Right. No, I agree 100%. And like, Is it per match? Is it down the middle? Right. Who and does the booking? So Crockett pulls all that NWA talent off of any future shows, um, and he pulls... Uh, you know, just a flair. Everybody's gone completely from that now. But wait, he's also trying to sign up other talent in that locker room. Right. Well, that's what I was just going to get to. That oh. that was the other thing that Vern gets crazy Well, obviously, it's like, yeah. what, what the hell are you doing? Right. Um, so then Vern becomes the, uh, the main promoter for the remaining group uh, that's there. And one of my favorite things, and I've read this over oh, and over. Oh, just wait. Before yes. we get into that, also loses Crockett's distribution network. Right, right. So loses the Superstation. Right. I, I was just going to say, one of my favorite quotes, uh, Vince McMahon uh, quote. Wait a maybe, yeah, Crockett already had the Superstation. Yes, he already MTA had the, was there. Yeah. Yes, because at that point, too, I think Georgia Championship Wrestling was part of it uh, in that mix. But they would have been World Championship Wrestling. Right, right. So um, World Championship Wrestling. <laughs> Remember that band? Yes, I do. It's, 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 the drummer beat up Cactus Jack? Well, that's when he was just starting out, right? Oh, no. He was around for years. <laughs> well, so, okay. All these promoters are together, and Vince McMahon has this great quote. And uh, when he's asked about the validity of uh, Pro Wrestling USA, he says, in their first meeting, meaning those all those promoters, they all agreed that they hated me and would do everything they could to put me out of business. The second meeting, they couldn't even agree on where to go for lunch. I thought okay. that's pretty good. Yeah, we're jumping way ahead here, but that's a prompt for a great story. Yes. Allegedly, in the second meeting, they also had, what's the guy that did the IWA? Eddie Einhorn yes. of the White Sox. Uh, they were going to get his machine behind the whole deal and you know cross promotions, blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden... Um, a uh, runner came to the room said, Mr. Einhorn, there's a Vince McMahon on the telephone for you. And Einhorn looks at all the other guys and says, what should I do? And they're like, well, go answer it. So he left the room, blah, 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 comes back. Well, what did he say? And He said, Mr. Einhorn, or probably said Eddie, because Vince McMahon wouldn't call anybody Mr. Eddie, this thing is doomed to failure. With that group of gentlemen in there, everybody thinks that they're the smartest person in the room and they can't even agree on what pizza to order for lunch. <laughs> right. And which I think is incredible because it's dead on. Yeah. And Vince can only say that because he's one of them, but he's saying 
what nobody else, of course, would admit. Oh, no, no, we're all in this together. We've got a band. It's like, no, no. It's, re- wrestling has always been this, like, seismic shift of alliances and who's working with who and who throws what power behind. So Vince was just basically calling him on it. Oh, yeah, right. Right. And that's, I mean, that's Vince, and that's why he was what was doing what he was doing at that point. I think he realized it. Right. And I also remember how um, vilified he was in the After magazine. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And of course, me being young and impressionable, I went along with it because that's the information I was getting. But now in retrospect, even though the wrestling wasn't very good, um, I understand the business practice totally. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, hindsight 2020, and you can look at it now too, and you can just see looking back it's still a bit fuzzy yeah dun, dun. i love your, your icy fingers claw your back dun, dun. I, I love your your, your musical references on these so we have the nwa leave right we have crockett leave uh we're left with awa who else are we left with hair is getting thin that was dave mustaine in an aside, I registered to vote in college because Dave Mustaine was very pro-politics at that time. And I was afraid that if I ever met him, he'd say, did you vote? And I'd say no, and then he would just spit on me. But he's really scrawny, too. Yeah, he, he is, and multiple addict. Uh, speaking of multiple addicts, um, Fritz von Erich, world-class <laughs> championship. <laughs> wow. Before we vilify Fritz von Erich here tonight. Oh, no, no. And at this point, too, it wasn't technically it wasn't world-class championship wrestling anymore. It was WCWA, right? Uh, yes, they had already gone into no. Yeah. Yes, they had already gone independent, quote unquote. Um, in what was really seen as confusing, even by fans, it's like okay, so now suddenly the world is defined by Texas, right? Which I understand being from Texas, that's how it was, but like shifting the focus off of the NWA and it was just too small and again too little, too late with right. world class. They had already. They'd already been in great syndication and at this time had already gone through several setbacks. Obviously, David passing away, so they had the David Von Erich Memorial Champion, uh, Memorial Parade of Champions. Right. Um, Mike had passed away at this time, uh, which caused them to bring in a Lance, right. who then disappeared because it was well known that that was a forgery and that right. really affected the trust in the Von Erichs. The Gino Hernandez thing. Gino Hernandez. Right. You know, numerous other stories. But that had that had eroded world class to where they weren't the you know the driving force that they were. I mean, they were really like granted Texas is huge, but they were a small time promotion that somehow were the first to hit it big right and didn't really know what they were doing um the lieutenants and the people running the deal wanted to do the national tours when everything was hot but fritz just wanted texas for his boys right again old school that's all he saw how much do you know about the in 87 or 88 uh fritz wanted to make that one last ditch to go national and he did the uh, Von Erichs Over America tour. Are you familiar with that at all? Like, I'd seen advertisements, like, maybe once or twice, the Von Erichs Over America, you know. Right. But never saw, like, remember, I grew up in, you know, southern Wisconsin, so I didn't see any, like, local shows advertised. But I understand they ran in Chicago twice. Okay. And those shows were top three matches world-class supplemented by local guys. And that's all it was. Okay, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what I was curious with. I didn't know if they were just adding the Von Eriks onto local shows or if it was actually a 
you know, world-class show. Well, it was they, done in, in cooperation, I'm sure. Um, like, they were set up through contacts. I believe Buddy, Ro- Buddy Roberts had already relocated to Chicago. Oh, okay, At yeah. that time, plus Chicago always had Sam DeSiro. Uh, I don't know. I'm assuming he was involved in the show just because of how the business was back then. Right. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always thought that that's something I've heard about, but I never knew anything about it and how it went. But I believe they ran in the Odium and Villa Park. Like they didn't even run like the the Horizon or the whatever it is now. Sure, just uh, yeah, something a little bit smaller. Yeah, yeah. That uh, that'd be interesting to see if there's any kind of footage of that out there. Uh, I've read about it a lot, but yeah. I, I heard it wasn't. They weren't stellar. Yeah, which I mean would make sense. It seems kind of like that last gasp. Trying, right, you know, keep that that uh, territory still breathing. Um, so at that point, there's kind of, and I don't want to say merger, because uh, I don't necessarily think it was a merger, but that's when they get together with AWA and then CWA with Jarrett, right? And that's, I mean, that's when they're all working together. That's that eighty-seven, eighty-eight. Are you talking about the USWA CWA stuff? Uh, no, that's, that's after the USWA okay. stuff happens after the Super Clash Three. Okay, um, but. At this point, so I mean, we're we're still pre Super Clash Three. Um, you have CWA, which is Memphis, right? Right. Uh, you have Vern in the AWA, and you have Fritz and the WCWA or the WCCW. All these alphabet soup going on here, mm-hmm. um, and then that's your main pool, with the exception of we'll get to Pow. Right, and, but and uh, but that. also bet you all those guys were on the phone with Don Owen. Yeah, like he was friends with all these people, and they still talked. But Owen wasn't going to get involved in anything like that because he was happy he had his little empire out. Right, and so you had those companies get together, and then of course this leads into that Super Clash Three, which we, Super Clash Two happens, and that's primarily a, an AWA event. There is some WCCW on there, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you're looking at an, uh, the. I would say probably eighty percent of that card is all AWA. I didn't even look it up, and I don't recall anything. Yeah, from it's it. uh, that's the uh, uh, Henning um, Bachwinkle. Was that super? Oh, Clash was that two? the one out in California? Yes, where he hit him with the roll of dimes. Yes. Oh, all right then. There, so, I know a match from it. There you go. No, very good match. Right. It, 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 but the of rest course, of the card was not, nothing spectacular whatsoever. That happened. Uh, so then there, you know, Bet wheels. Your Colonel De Beers was on it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. was. And I'm going to forget who he was up against in that one. But yeah, there was definitely some Colonel De Beers. Um, Easy Ed Wiskoski. <laughs> well, Have you ever seen any of his Maharaji gimmick? No, no. Apparently out in, they're in Oregon, in, in Idaho or something, there was a cult or like a uh, Hare Krishna type deal. Okay. He did a long time gimmick based off of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. When was this? Post De Beers, uh, pre De Beers, pre De Beers. Okay. Oh, Kyle's coming in with us. Some Super Clash Two. Tell us a match, Kyle. Uh, Jimmy Snuka and Russ Francis. <laughs> Jimmy Snuka and Russ Francis versus the Terrace and the Mercenary. Versus the Terrace and the Mercenary, which may have been the Nasty Boys under a mask. Under, oh, really? Well, two masks. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's Kyle says that that's correct. Uh, anything else on that card of uh, note? So it was Henning versus Bachwinkle. Uh, Sherry Martell versus Medusa. Uh, Sherry versus Medusa. Okay. Uh, Midnight Rockers and Ray Stevens versus Buddy Rose, Doug Summers, and Kevin Kelly. 
I love that simply because. So wait, what, Ray what is Stevens it again? So California. it's it's Ray Stevens, the Midnight Rockers versus Summers, Rose, and Kevin Kelly. Yep. Okay. Went on to become Nails. Yes. Dead. Yeah, so DJ uh, Peterson versus Super Ninja. Which is either Jun Takano or Steve Olsonowski. Okay. Um, first match of the night was Sheik. Uh, Adnan Al Casey. No. Yep. Yep. Oh, really? Yep, versus Buck. But rock and roll Zoomhoff. Uh, all right. Buck Zoomhoff. This is all getting caught. <laughs> no, no. And then, uh, Kyle, do you know about Buck Zoomhoff? No, we're not getting into that. We're not going to. Don't worry. Yeah. I just... Kyle's young. I just, you know. Jerry Blackwell versus Boris. Zukov. Yes, Boris Jerry Zukov. Blackwell yes. versus Boris Zukov. Very good. Very nice. Big, large cranium on that guy. Uh, yes, but it was originally, uh, what, Private Jim Nelson. Yes. In the Cobra Corps. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was funny that he went from the red, white, and blue or camouflage to Russian. No, what I always thought was crazy about Boris Zukov was that they made him do the Charles Manson hammer and sickle on his forehead. Uh-huh. Because uh, even as a kid, I'd look at him like, "What's this guy, Charlie Manson?" Okay. Yeah, because I mean, you know, he had like he put it right in the center. I'm familiar. I, I know. I'm just. It looked like Charles Manson. Okay, but they, they had everybody painting their faces. They were trying but to get something wasn't new. Painting faces. That was like um, right in the spot where Manson put the swastika. Okay. I, you're talking. It's now, also the site of the third eye that Mark Lewin used to reference with his, you know, weird hand signal. Yes. Okay. Well, but whatever. I'm just saying that I would look at it and be like, "This is this like the Russian version of Charles Manson?" I'm rolling my third eye at you. I'm sure you are. All right. So speaking of rolling eyes, let's talk about David McLean. Do you know who that is? Uh, yes. Came out of uh, Indiana. Yes. Worked for Dick the Bruisers uh, organization, but then. Somehow concentrated exclusively on women's wrestling. Absolutely. He was one of the uh, first with Glow. Yes. And uh, did you watch Glow? Yes, I did. Um, recently rewatched it through a DVD collection and was amazed by how bad it was. Apparently, Mondo Guerrero trained those girls for three weeks and, and said, was there it. you go. Right. Have you seen the documentary? Yes. Yeah, which I thought that was really good, too. Uh, I had always heard it was financed by Israeli mafia money, but I know nothing about that, and it's just a story I heard. Right. So I know nothing, So back, allegedly. Back off of us, Israeli mafia. Um, so he gets out of Glow, and then he starts a POW. Powerful women of wrestling. Yes. And I think there was a wow at one point, wasn't there, of his? Like a... Just women of wrestling. I think it, he had multiple. He had run multiple female groups. Yes, and lots of. Well, I'd say lots. I guess, but uh, a few notable names. Luna. Uh, Luna was in there. Uh, Bambi and Peggy Lee Leather. Yeah. Um, Bambi went on to become Selena Majors in. Can't remember the name of that last women's promotion. Selena Majors and uh, Peggy Lee Leather became the Thug. Right. Yeah. Peggy Lee Leather was also Lady X for the LPWA. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And Which I do not think involved uh, Dave McLean. No. And Dave McLean's still alive now, isn't he? Yes. Doing some other shady business. I hope so. Something, I doing certainly hope so. Something along that line. So, uh, But he always reminded me very much of uh, Herb Abrams in that, and you'll see this in the buildup and the um, interviews cut during the show. He interjects himself, and he gets him... 
he gets in the majority of the lines for Absolutely. the interviews. Yeah, no, he gets himself yeah, puts himself over big, big time. Uh, but yeah, definitely a uh, a character, almost uh, just strange. I don't know everything yeah. I've ever seen on him. He's just a real strange. He kind of reminded me of uh, um, Jerry Mathers. As the beaver? Well, not, but yeah, as the beaver as a wrestling promoter, <laughs> that was super sleazy. Get it? Because they're women. <laughs> that is good. I didn't think about that oh, one. Oh, Jesus. Sorry. That was great. So now we have these powerhouses. We have WCWA, a.k.a. World Class. We have the AWA. We have uh, Jerry Jarrett CWA, also known as Memphis. Mm-hmm. And we have the POW, uh, powerful... Powerful ladies of uh, or wi- powerful women of wrestling. Powerful women of wrestling. Uh, also, another person very notable in that organization. Uh, her name was Nina at that time, but went on to become Ivory. Yes. What Tina Moretti? I believe yes. her name is. Um, so yeah, so there were some diamonds in the rough, you could say, in that. But now, what was the purpose of bringing them on board for Super Clash? Like, just is it just the TNA? Just the. He was a wrestling promoter and brought money yeah okay i mean i that i guess that is that simple yes but it's also you'll see uh mclean is in the circle of promoters that we'll talk about in a little bit for the build-up press conferences but the pow thing like he came out and announced that thing like that was a totally separate uh we're gonna let this guy put the blankety blanks out there and just let him deal with all that right but okay. then, but also on the show, who I'm sure loved it was uh, Wendy Richter and Medusa Michelli. Yes, we'll get into that, and in that a matches up. We'll get into that. In a little bit. Alan Coaggy has always been bad news for opponents. Wrestling fans knew him best as Bad News Allen, but that nickname stuck long before wrestling came calling. As a world-class judo star, Koagi took bronze at the 76 Montreal Olympics and won two straight gold medals at the Pan American Games. This success put him on several promoters' radars across the world. Koagi initially wavered at the chance to train in the squared circle, seeing as he was never a fan of professional wrestling. However, he eventually decided to do it partly for the chance to go back to Japan, a home away from home and a place he loved. Tutored in the New Japan Dojo by Antonio Inoki, Koagi would spend 15 years of his career wrestling in front of Japanese fans as Buffalo Allen. When I went there, I enjoyed it, Koagi told Slam Wrestling in an April 98 interview. For me, training for wrestling was a lot easier than judo itself, mainly because this time I was getting paid to do it. After learning the ropes in New Japan, Koagi hit the road, but his favorite place to wrestle continued to be Japan. In 1982, he made his first tour with Stu Hart Stampede promotion in Canada. Bret Hart and Dynamite Kid had been on tour with Koagi in Japan and convinced Stu to bring him in for a run. Stu kept bugging me. He kept begging me to come back because he liked my style and I was making money for him, the four-time winner of Stampede's North American title explained. So I came back in 83, and hooked up with my wife, and I've been here ever since. This chance meeting happened in Redwater, outside of Edmonton, after Koagi missed both the babyface and the heel bus to the next show. A friend of Helen's recognized Koagi and offered him a ride into Edmonton. To make a long story short, that was it. They invited me to a party and we got together. We've been together ever since. 
Koagi's first stint with the WWF came in 1978 when it was actually the WWWF and run by Vince McMahon Sr. At the time, New Japan Pro Wrestling had a relationship with the WWWF and sent Koagi in for some American-style experience. It was with the WWWF that he started using Bad News Allen as his ring name instead of the New Japan nickname of Buffalo Allen Koagi. I didn't want to work in the States, because you've always got to fight with the promoters for your money, he would tell his peers. Then when Stu Hart folded the Stampede promotion for the first time, he sold the rights to his area to the WWF. At this time, Stu arranged for Dynamite, Davy Boy Smith, Brett, and myself to go into New York. I never went because my wife was pregnant, and that was going to be our last child. I wanted to be home for once, not always on the road. So I stayed in Canada until 1988 when I signed with the WWF. Koagi was in the Fed until 1990 as Bad News Brown, but it isn't an experience he cherishes. He had a few matches against Hulk Hogan, feuded with Roddy Piper, Jake Roberts, and Bret Hart, but never held a title nor headlined a pay-per-view. He did, however, win the Battle Royale at WrestleMania 4. They never kept their word to me, he said. It wasn't a fun time for me. You see, when I left there, I was really happy. I was brought there under false pretenses. They never kept their word to me. I was just sick of the lying all the time. That was two and a half years of my life that I don't really enjoy. According to Koagi, even the money wasn't the answer. I was making a lot of money, but I had to pay two different sets of taxes and I had to fight with Vince McMahon Jr. all the time for my money. In Japan, you made a deal before you even wrestled what your money was going to be. You signed the contract and that was it. It was money in the bank. You never had to worry. They never cheated you on anything, there were no problems. But with Vince, there was always some kind of problem. He considers his favorite matches to be against Inoki and his short program with Hulk Hogan. But two wrestlers really stand above all for him. The two best wrestlers that I ever worked with, bar none, were Dynamite Kid and Ricky Steamboat. They were the best at that time, pound for pound, without a doubt. Alan and Helen Koagi lived in Calgary and are the parents of nine children three boys and six girls, and the grandparents to 14 grandkids. Koagi passed away of a heart attack on the morning of March 6, 2007 at Rocky View General Hospital in Calgary, minutes after being rushed there due to chest pain. Koagi was proud of his career and proud that he always worked hard in the ring regardless of the crowd size. It was always business with me. There was never no playing ribs on people or making fun of people. I was there to work and do my job and get paid for it. So let's talk about the lead up to Super Clash. I know there was some stuff you had uh, wanted to talk about, some of the promos, some of the, the build. Well, all of these promoters that were involved here, again, they were looking at how the wrestling business was changing and they weren't able to react effectively to it. They were all, as we said earlier, they all wanted to get in there, take care of Vince, and then just settle back down and do their thing. There was never an organized plan or they probably didn't recognize an organized plan on how to take over the country, much like Vince did. So they're all coming into this deal kind of weakened. Um, they get together. Uh, the first shows run very good. Uh, they go to set up Super Clash 3. They have tapings down at a hotel in Memphis. Okay. Um Stagger Lee Marshall does the the commentary for all this. Well, like Larry Nelson throws it to Stagger Lee, who's saying, "Hey, I'm on the." I loved I loved Lee Marshall. <laughs> I thought he had a great voice. Yeah, he did. Um, 
going over to interview and find out what's going on. And they're having the press conference for the Super Clash 3 that they're announcing. They're very excited about it. And seated around this table, let me grab my notes here. Seated around this table, a, a V-shaped table in front of a Super Clash backdrop. Right, I remember that. Which was filmed, looking at it now, you can see that it's just kind of tucked into the corner of this one room. Right. Right. And I remember as a child thinking, wow, this is so momentous that they can get everybody together like this. Well, child, I was 18. They can get everybody together. And looking at it now, it's like, oh, my God, I've seen this done on much crappier levels. And now I can't look at this the same way again. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Sitting around this table, of course, on the front, on the left-hand side, Vern Gagne. Next to him, Jerry Jarrett, and then Jerry Lawler, because he was the champion champion of the AWA. Yeah, and then Dave McLean, which is funny because him and Lawler probably talked about stuff. Um, coming around the thing, you had Frank Duzik uh, of World Class, who brought up the World Class Open Door policy. This was something that World Class had done uh, when they broke off to try and legitimize that, Hey, we taken anybody. And I believe they brought in iron Sheik and Terry Taylor for a few shots yep. to say, yep. Hey, we've got people coming in here. This is very interesting. Uh, Carrie Von Eric looking like a monster sitting next to him. Right. Uh, and then John Cochran, who is a promoter in the Northeast. I have no idea who he is. Just, just sitting there. Yeah. But I mean, he's there, so he's got money. And then Stanley Blackburn, uh, who name drops uh, Bob Geigel and Don Owens, you know, because he knows all the promoters. That's how he was involved in the business. And then Bob Ryan, who was like the legal counsel for the AWA, who helped draft the contract, who gets a shocking amount of mic time to describe how he's looked it over and everything looks good and they're going to, everybody's going to contribute their matches and it's going to be the greatest thing. So, where was this guy in the tail end? Right. Of course, the other part is he worked for the AWA, so shame on the other people for not getting somebody independent. <laughs> right, right. You know, if but I also recall at the end the AWA used their lawyers a lot on oh, TV, sure. you know, again cuz they have money. Cuz everybody wants to see lawyers in pro wrestling. Yes, lawyers in love. <laughs> So um, they announce this press conference and state that they're going to have this, but then they have the contract signing between Jerry Lawler and Kerry Von Erich. Uh, Jerry Lawler, nice short mullet. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the, the Tight. sign of the times. Right. Um, Kerry Von Erich in his suit coat, but Kerry decides he wants to do it right now in a, a, a voice that's so compelling and drags you into it so hard. I'm lying because it was Kerry Von Erich, and I'm just wondering how goofed up he was right. when he was doing this. God bless him. I mean, I'm sorry for the props that Von Erichs have had, but it's funny to see guys all goofed up. Right. That's all. That's very funny right now when you watch old wrestling. It's trying to figure out who's on what. Sure. Um, just recently, a match between Hercules and the Junkyard Dog, and my viewing companion said, I wonder how much cocaine these two did together before they came out for this match. Right. Yeah, I believe it. Staggering. Yeah, I think when you look at that, a lot of the Kerry Von Erich stuff. Um, I mean, I guess when you're wrapped up in it, in it's the not heat just of the him. Moment, no, it's not no, absolutely him. not. Right, but I mean, but when you're watching Kerry uh, Von Erich stuff from back then, looking at you, superstar, girl. and everybody is wrapped up in it at that point, and you're not seeing it. 
but through fresh eyes yeah now, when you look at it, you're like holy cow yeah like, world world class is sloppy anyway getting back to the contract signing uh one i always love the the contract signing because i'd love to know what's on those pages right. which is probably either you know gibberish or i would love to think it's a dirty joke sure yeah just right yeah nothing really you know why substance. not but they both signed, and then Carrie wants to do it right then and there, but they hold him back. Because that makes total sense. I, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of that. I know. Yes. Because that, like, cause not, that's, yeah, I know. I just think about even that, the philosophy of that, and yes, again, his state of mind, I don't know if that was what they were telling him to say, like, I want to do this right here, but that's kind of like there's never been a... Oh, no, I understand it in the script. He just uh, couldn't execute it well. Yeah. And it's just but funny. he's young and ready to go and, you know, right. probably could have gone into it a different way. But right. Yeah, it's Carrie Von Eric. <laughs> do what you do, buddy. To quote my girlfriend, he has girl hair. Yeah, it's true. I, Yeah, I would have done something different with it. But I was always a Kevin guy. Yeah. So. I like Kevin's hair. The bowl cut? Well, it wasn't like when it was a little shaggy. Or... Still has most of it now. Yeah. No, yeah. I like that look. I, I really do. Oh, I think that's a good. Okay. I like it. Uh, it's. Uh, he reminded me a little bit of. Um, I feel very strongly about this. Yeah. No. He, he remind. You know, things always remind me of other things, of course. And he reminded me a lot of um, uh, Kelly from the Bad News Bears. Ah, okay. I can see it. Took a long way to get there, but yeah, but I mean, but that's the I couldn't think of his name. Okay, so what else do we need to discuss here? Well, no, I just uh, we've talked about everybody getting together for meetings, right? Uh, What are we going to do about Vince? Um, There was also, uh, I don't know if it was for this. It may it may have been earlier, may have been later. No, that was more with the Pro Wrestling USA, where one one member, an owner of a midwestern promotion, was in one of these meetings and tried to tell everybody that. If they would take care of his family and make sure they were saw too properly, that he would go and shoot Vince McMahon. <laughs> Great. And allegedly, uh, it was temporarily discussed, but uh, some people in that room then laughed when they saw this person working for Vince a few months later. Right. Fun. That's crazy. Yeah. So. That's a time though. Um, was again, it's the old school of this. This is our house. We all get our own houses, but here comes the big bad wolf that blew them all down. And now, what are we going to do against that? Right. And you just think about how short sighted that is, too, to think mm-hmm. we're just going to do a series of shows and hope that people stop watching WWF and then he'll go out of business and then we just go back to business as usual. But this was the formula that right. even people like Jim Barnett put Because forth. they did take Pro Wrestling USA into. New Jersey at that point. I know they had done a few shows, like uh, maybe it was East East Rutherford. We talked about first episode right. of the podcast. We talk about that. Um, so, yeah, so they tried to take it into Vince's yard and never really had that much success in it. Now, my question, something that I wasn't sure on, when the NWA or when Crockett leaves Pro Wrestling USA, does it cease to being called Pro Wrestling USA, and is it just the conglomerate of the – CWA, World Class, and AWA at that point. Are they still calling themselves Pro Wrestling no. USA? No, no. It's again, not. we just... we talked about this earlier that like I never saw an episode of Pro Wrestling USA on TV. Right. Like I saw it as part of an AWA show that said, "No, let's take a look at." Again, that was the first time I saw Dusty Rhodes, and at the time, I just didn't know. That's all I'll say. Just, you didn't like him. I, just, just I, did say not, it. I didn't like commit Dusty to the, Rhodes. Commit to it. I did not like Dusty Rhodes when I first saw him because I bought into the, uh, who was the guy, the Dan Shockett. Yeah. 
ah, this guy's fat and out of shape, and who is he to represent us and everything? I didn't understand the sweet soul. Yeah, I had to learn. I had to learn. Well, you're that you know that upper. I'm willing upper to crust. You're not that common man. I'm willing person. to open my mind just to see what's going on. I'm yeah, fine with that. Yeah, but at first, just didn't, didn't appeal. No, uh, but I never saw it on TV. But now on YouTube. Uh, there's like episodes with who is it Jack Reynolds doing interviews and stuff like yep, that. Like yep, I've I never seen any of that, so I'm kind of fuzzy on how much of this footage was filmed and how long did this actually go for. Like right, where, where it may where have it been air? like two TV tapings and never got shopped around or whatever. Yeah, because it definitely was. I mean, I it is like you said, you can see it; it's out there now, but it's not something that was readily available when we were right younger. Right. Um, so so yeah. It stopped being called Pro Wrestling USA. Right. And it was just the all end. these groups. So there they get, they come together. So, uh, day of the show is December 13th, 1988, live from Chicago, uh, coming from the UIC, UIC Pavilion. Pavilion. Now, um, the UIC Pavilion could hold roughly about 10,000 people. Yes. Paid attendance was 2,000. 1,600 ish. Uh, okay. Still, every seat counts. Yes. So uh, even at that point, this was clearly going to be, I mean, it seemed like all, for all intents and purposes, this was going to be a, uh, a flop of an event. So I want to I bring you into, imagine what it's like being Vern Gagne, having everybody else face you down on this. Right. Like, I'm sure Gagne at that time was a master of, you know, shifting the blame. He was a businessman, so I'm sure he did something. But can you just imagine that, you know, the gulp that you take as you look out the window and you don't see a line and nobody's coming? And it's, uh, it's, I'm sure he blamed his guy on the ground or whatever. Right. Right. But I, I really, when you watch it, when you actually see the footage, it's, I, like I feel bad. Like I honestly feel bad, or I feel sad. It's it's a very um, sad feeling, I guess, to see something like that. Fair enough. But the, when I first saw footage from it, like when I saw the uh, Lawler Von Erich match when they played it on TV yeah. later, I didn't notice the crowd because I was so excited about the matches that were happening. Right. I was. I totally bought into the hype because I because I wanted to believe. I wanted to believe so bad. Was AWA merchandising at that point? Uh, not beyond the Mego dolls and the VHS, because like, there was never a commercial tape of Super Clash Three released. Right? No, but what I guess my point being that I think that um, even with sixteen hundred people in attendance, you would think that if there were Super Clash T-shirts or there were some T-shirts that uh, they would have been able to produce or something to make a little bit of extra scratch. But, but who was going to pay for that? That's right. You know, because if somebody sold it, they'd be like, "Hey, my, you've got my people's name on there." You got my people's face on there. Part but that's that money like the uh, what the battle royal, the New Year's uh, battle royal one, the, or the or that not the New Year's the uh, the AWA the, yeah series. They, they'd have the battle royal T-shirt with everybody's name just listed yeah. On it. But all those people were working for the AWA at that time, and it, they all probably took a cut off of that. I don't think so. <laughs> I, know, I know, but <laughs> but seriously, all of these promoters, if they would have sold a shirt with a likeness or a name on it, they would have been looking for a piece of that money. So looking to that, who's going to pay to have those produced? Who's right. gonna, you know, cause I'm not going to pay for that. I'm, uh, if I do it, I'm only going to put my people on it. Right. You know? Or just do the promotion like an AWA shirt. I, it wasn't 
it, I don't know. I'm that just didn't of exist ideas. in these guys' minds, and I understand that, and that's I guess what I'm. I mean, I'm, the AWA sold those like a crappy series of T-shirts, which right. I would love to find now. But. Right. Well, so and we're gonna we know we've talked about it, and that this episode's basically the the lead up the the prelude to Star or Starcade. I was with associated meandering. My goodness, uh, Super Clash Three. This is the the prelude to Super Clash Three. But I think let's kind of say what happens. Without talking about the matches themselves, let's talk about what happens, what are the repercussions of everything that happens after Super Clash 3. Let's get all of the behind the scenes We're just going to jump to that? Yes. In the next episode, we're going to do all the matches for Super Clash 3. In all their glory. Yes, absolutely. And and I'm just saying I think that this is the way to do it because we definitely, you know, we've talked about all the stuff leading up to it. Let's just talk about what happens after. I'm not talking about. Boom. So we shoot through. And welcome back. Because you've skipped forward and listened to next week's episode. Yes. Um, so this show happens. There's a lot of promotion behind it, but only 1,600 people show up. Uh, does an atrocious buy rate on pay-per-view because I believe it was on an off night. Right. Like a Wednesday. Um, again, Vern Gagne and his cohorts thought this is wrestling. We're the biggest ticket in town. Right. We just have to tell people it's here. They will come. They don't understand how the business has changed and how Vince is getting his crowds and how he's pulling everything over. So there's no money. So Vern Gagne decides, well, it's my show. It's the AWA running it. I'm going to get first count. He takes all the money, allegedly pays off a few of his longtime associates. And not even... Hit the regular AWA guys, he paid off. No, no, just his his cronies. Right. The people, you know, his... his Ray Stevens got paid all right. that. You, you know, think Greg, that, Greg got paid, right? Greg got paid, yes. <laughs> right. But everybody else didn't get paid. Uh, when, when all the other wrestlers from the other promotions came and said, hey, Vern, you know, what's going on here? It's like, no, you go talk to Jarrett or you go talk to Von Eric because they're the ones that were supposed to pay you. Right. So all of a sudden, Vern changes the rules at the end. Which is also kind of like we talked about that plane, was it plane in the middle, the the old Barnett? Yep. Um, Vern basically sending the other promoters to search out the other promoters uh-huh. and get the heat between them, and he just kind of stands back. But and, the whole deal is people saw that crowd. They knew there was no money in that right, house. Right, So everybody that worked that night was wondering what's going to happen to my payday. Right. You know, so they, they knew something was up, especially when they were supposed to pay you because suddenly the other promoters were like, no, Vern was taking care of that. But they weren't doing it to screw the talent. They were saying, no, Vern was supposed to take care of that. Right, right. You know, allegedly. So Vern Gagne burns a lot of bridges, yeah. including... Uh, the bridge leading to his world heavyweight champion, Jerry right. the King Lawler. Right, because he doesn't receive a payday on this one. He does not get paid. Uh, he's the unified champion, but does not get paid. So what does he do? He takes his belt back to Memphis with him because he's going to hold the belt to get his payday. Right. You know, And that's they end up stripping him. Yes, yes. They finally serve him with legal, legal work, you own our property, blah, 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 blah. This is a separate issue. He sends the belt back to them. Right. Which also then leads to, like we talked about in the AWA uh, Heavyweight Championship episode, that's when Vern ends up putting it on Zabisco. Well, it doesn't put it on Zabisco. He didn't know he was putting it on Zabisco because he put it up in a battle royal. Anybody could have won that battle royal. (laughs) 
Tom Zank was that close. Was very close. That close. Dusty Rhodes was supposed to be in that, but missed his plane. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's Oh, the excuses. Oh, yeah. Well, excuses. Well, That's just the way the ball bounces. The, the way it was. And, of course, too, Vern gets really defensive after Super Clash 3, and he starts blaming uh, again with the uh, Jerry Jarrett's trying to poach my talent, uh, Fritz von Erich's trying to poach my talent. But at that point... World, At that point, people class. were freely talking. Right. World class was got already on a downhill swirl yeah, like there. That was almost the end of Again, it. they had they had a huge wave in eighty two and eighty three. Once David passed away, that was the first chink in the armor, and then suddenly like it was only like five years. Right. And boom, they were they were down in the gutter. Right. Uh and then that's the point though when Jarrett swoops in. Well, let's let's hold off and get to that sure. because uh, Jerry Lawler is still the unified champion. Yes. Because he unified the AWA and the world class titles, both of which still exist. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So the AWA gets their title back, but Lawler still says he's the unified champion, but winds up losing it several weeks later to, I believe it's Snowman. Really? Yes. Wow. The off forgot about Snowman. Yes, I thought that was just, I mean, because I was like following this through the mags because I was just like, okay, he's got a legitimate title claim. We got to keep track of this. <laughs> and all of a sudden I see it goes to Snowman, who may or may not have pawned the belt. Like a shoot, like pawned yes, the belt. Yes, yes. Wow. Uh, it's not the first time that's been done either. I heard it was Pedro Morales, but probably Eduardo Perez or Miguel Perez Sr., uh, pawned one of the WWF uh, tag belts at one point. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's wrestling. Right? Yeah, who gave him money for it? That's Of course, it might have been a good belt, but right. I doubt it. And so even just to think oh, of... Oh, so yeah. uh, Memphis is still there. Memphis is still a force, again, because they have that strong weekly circuit, right? and they don't have to pay to produce their television. Right. So that, that's a big thing in their favor. Plus, you know, they were still a local institution, but they were also able to successfully defend their area against Vince when they came in. Because they still toured, and WCW came in, but then uh, Jarrett would do things like hold a free show or, you know, have all the wrestlers playing in a, bas- a baseball game at the same time the afternoon show was going on, so people would come out and see Right, that. right. You know, so they were good at defending Memphis and everything. So that's the only reason they're around. But they've got a little bit of money. Uh, world class uh, starts to get on a downhill turn. Um, you know, Kerry ends up shooting himself in '93. Right. But uh, I mean, but way before that, though, you're looking at the main feud going on was like Buddy Roberts and the SST versus Michael Hayes and uh, I forget the guy. He's <laughs> he's on the show. Do it to it, Steve Cox. Yes. Yeah. So, like, that was their main... Uh, fans of podcasts on this network are very familiar with Steve Do It To It Cox. Really? Got into a huge uh, Facebook war with members of our management here and associates of ours. Excellent. Yeah, just bizarre. Oh, I can't wait to talk to him about bizarre. that. Bizarre. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, so, like, that was one of the big feuds. The rise of Eric Embry mm-hmm. as well at that point, which is a strange... Well, Eric Embry was also the booker. Right. 
he was the booker and allegedly living at the sportatorium at the time <laughs> because that's how bad paydays were. Right, right. Yeah, you know, so... Like, I mean, only... only You didn't make money in Texas unless your name was Von Eric. Everybody else was on, like, subsistence salaries and side cons and everything right. like that. So, like, business just fell off. The people went away. The people didn't believe anymore. Wrestling just fell out of favor. All the fans that came in at the start of the Von Eric, you know, all of their heroes were gone. Right. You know, and in a lot of cases, a lot of their heroes had passed away, so there was no way, you know, to bring that back. So they got down low enough to where Jarrett and uh, Von Erich start talking um, about Jarrett pumping money back into the franchise. the The business had passed on to Carrie and Kevin. Right. Uh, so Carrie hadn't shot himself yet. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the business being run by Carrie and Kevin, who had zero business sense, but. But great hair. These are my boys. They're they're the ones going to run this. So they had no idea. So then Jerry Jarrett came in, took a look at the books, uh, found out like, you know, what was really business expenses and what was just living out of the business, and came up with a figure and got it going and set up a satellite circuit for Memphis. So they would send a bus there every weekend to run their shows to come up with content to fill the syndication network. Oh, okay. You know, and that's where Eric Embry was allowed to book the Texas versus Tennessee feud, which you see segments of in here. Yeah. And then, uh, so Memphis absorbs the WCCW, and that becomes USWA in the long run, right? Yes. And yes. And yeah, well, that's a separate, that's a storyline that was built up uh, to where you had the world-class name, you had the USWA name. They had the world-class name do a heel turn with yes. uh, P.Y. Chuhai and Skandor Akbar yep. and that whole heel deal, which set up a cage match. The winner got to own the promotion. Uh, Eric Embry for the USWA, P.Y. Chuhai for world-class. Embry goes over, and they climbs up onto the wall Which of the sportatorium great, great footage, yeah. and, and rips off the flag of world-class and says, now we're renaming this, and here's where we go. And a lot of people in the business took that as an affront because they're like, hey, I put a lot of heart and soul into world-class, and here you're just throwing it away. Right. So Yeah, that's crazy. But It's when, great footage. I mean, it, it's, it's great cool footage, but you think about you know this, this huge – I hate – Legacy. I'll go off on a tangent about this in a second. Yes. But the legacy of world class just being thrown away in an angle is kind of regrettable when you realize, you know, everything that it was at one time. Right. But it's such a that era. I mean, you think about just even in popular culture, you think about the way the world was going, or I should say the United States at that point. We were a disposable culture. And I think that at that point, Something like a legacy didn't matter much. But the whole point is, it's wrestling. Uh, right. It doesn't matter because everything is an angle. Gorilla Monsoon said, if you're in this business for anything other to put money in your pocket, you're a fool. So, I'm, I'm stupid. <laughs> well, and on that note, any last things on the uh, behind-the-scenes makings of Super Clash 3 before we call this one a, a wrap? It was really the AWA's last gas, but I still go back to these guys were playing a game and they had no idea what the rules were. It's also interesting to, when you look they at it. They were saying, it, hey, is that the grassroots? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you look at it and you say you had the super strong at one point, WCCW, in Texas, which had you know some syndication and toured around the world. You look at AWA, which had definitely made its mark. And then you look at Memphis, the smallest of the three. And at the end, when the dust settles and the dust clears... Memphis was the one, last one standing. 
That's true. It's very true. Memphis went until 96. So. Yep. And AWA, I think, wrapped up in 90 or 91. Yes. So uh, Depending on who you talk to. Right. So, again, you look at it and you think, like, the the true the little guy. We know we always talk about Memphis so much, but you realize how much and how well they did in handling their stuff to be able to absorb uh, world-class, outlast AWA. There is actually a story of Jerry Jarrett and Vern Gagne talking about selling the AWA to Jerry Jarrett. But at the last minute, Ganya decided. Ganya said he needed to have Greg needs a job. Greg has to work for you. And Jared Oy. just said, "Nope, no thanks," and walked away from it. That poor Greg, hey. Well, again, well, it's easy to make fun of Greg, but what about you and your sons? Don't you want to make sure they're taken care of? Not at all. Okay. I want them to take care of me. Okay. No, that's wait. Here's a question. And that's the attitude. No, that's no, a statement. Yeah. Uh, here, here's a question for you. Eric Watts or Greg Gagne? Oh, Greg Gagne. Greg oh. Gagne is actually a very good worker and a very a very good wrestler. He was just saddled with all of this baggage. Yeah. Knew how to have a match, was believable. I mean, sure, he was a bit thin, but he wasn't trying to be, you know, he wasn't trying to be a muscle man. Sure. He was just out there to be a credible wrestler, and I think he was very good. And he, he, he could hold his own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And allegedly behind the scenes, because he was the boss's son, if anybody called him on, he said, okay, let's step outside. Let's do this right now. Oh, wow. So good for him. He always just reminded me of an uncle. Sure. Like a regular old uncle. You know, just some guy. Sure. So, but, you know, and I never liked the tights, that tie-dye yellow and white. Everybody's got their thing. I know. I know. It was kind of, just wasn't my... Did you like when thing. he went red? I liked when he did the uh, um, Ganya, was it the, the camouflage? No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. Nobody <laughs> likes the Rambo gun. Yeah. No, really? No. Uh, Good promo great. when he's chopping wood in front of Sergeant Slaughter. When he. Uh, you like me, don't you, Greg? I hate you, Slaughter. I hate you. Oh, that, I thought that was great. I thought the fire that he showed in the Wrestle Rock Rumble, because um, he had Brody in the cage. Yes. He was in a um, rage. He was in a rage because he had Brody in the cage, and someone's going to take a tumble at the Wrestle Rock Rumble. But that. My yeah! That is another episode somewhere down the road. Oh. Next week, we will do it. We will cover from uh, top to bottom the card Super Clash 3. Um, Including the NWA World Tag Champs? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are going to cover every single match on that show. Uh, it should only take one show to do, to be honest with you. It's not going to be like the Starcade episode. Um, and we will get into all uh, the very, details. Very little Western boots on yeah, this show. Yeah, not a lot of Western yes, boots. Yes, not a lot. Um, a lot of just a, another thing, if you have the chance to watch Super Clash 3, do it because there is so much craziness just in the sense of the audience's reaction to people like Greg Gagne, to the, their reaction to uh, the finishes of matches. I can honestly say I've never heard this much booing from a crowd ever. It, they booed everything out of the building this night. So it is a great, great uh, show to watch. If you have the, the uh, network, check it out. Um, but we will get into that next time. Derek, it has been a pleasure. I believe that they'd boo the place up because if you think about it, who's going to go to wrestling on a Wednesday? Right. I mean, like these were the people that were going to be there no matter what. Right. So. Yeah, it was definitely. So they got it. They got what it was is, going It on. is a thing. So anyhow, so again, you've been listening to Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire, heard exclusively 
at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilkay, and we will see you next time when we talk about Super Clash 3. Super Clash 3.